Uh, but we are going to continue in the series in Luke this morning, and I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity uh, to do that. So if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, we'll be considering verses 1 through 12 this morning. As we come to this text, we need to have this in mind, that it's now around 6 a.m. Friday morning, just hours before Jesus Christ will be hung on the cross. Uh, in the last six hours or so, Jesus has been betrayed, falsely accused, arrested, abandoned by those who loved him most, blindfolded, mocked, and beaten. Now, the Son of Man stands before his next round of accusers, sleep-deprived and weak, and it only gets worse from here. With that in mind, if you are able, please stand out of reverence for God and his word as we read together Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man, but they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord, and they will stand forever. Would you pray with me? God, I do pray that you would bless this time, uh, that you would meet with us here, speak through your words. This is your story, uh, the story of our Savior. Lord, I pray that we would know him so personally this morning as our Lord. And Jesus, you would even be present with us now through your spirit, and we would know what it is that you are truly our King. Um, we need to know that. Speak to us, we pray. In your name we ask. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever had that experience where you thought you knew who someone was and, and then you turned out to be very wrong, like it ended up being somebody very different than you thought they were? Um, I remember as a kid, um, walking inside a mall back when malls had insides and uh, walking by my dad and thinking uh, it, it was my dad and grabbing his like khaki pant leg and looking up and it wasn't my dad. 
Um, or even now as a campus minister, you know, walking across campus and seeing students that I recognize and trying to be cool and call them by name and, and, and I get it wrong. Like it's not, I say Heather and it, the girl just looks at me weird. It's not Heather. And, uh, or even now with masks on, like you have to recognize this part of each other. We, we sort of live in this world where sometimes we miss people, right? I love this story from Rico Tice. He's a pastor in England who I really like. And he tells this story when uh, several years ago, he was in London uh, waiting to meet a friend and he was waiting to be picked up. And he was in this, some sort of like stairwell. And there was one other guy in the stairwell with him who was also waiting on a ride And the way he tells the story is he recognized this guy. Like he knew he looked really familiar, but he couldn't place the the name with a face or where he might have known him from. And he said maybe five minutes passed by, five or 10 minutes, and he's sort of just standing there silently beside this guy. And someone comes to pick up the other guy and they say, William, we're ready. And he leaves. And he said just after he left, it hit him where he knew this guy from. It was not just some William, this was Prince William. (laughs) And he had been standing in a stairwell with the prince for like five to 10 minutes, completely silently, completely missing an opportunity to be with this person of royalty. Can you imagine being that close to royalty and completely missing him? Completely missing who he was. This is what we have in our passage. Several parties so close to royalty and completely missing him. Jesus' accusers, so many different ones, accusing him making accusations, wanting to convict him, wanting to kill him, and completely missing who he is. So we're going to walk through this story and consider it under three basic points. We're going to look at Jesus' accusers. We're going to consider his response, and then hopefully we'll ask a very important question for all of us, uh, because could we be missing who Jesus is too? First, let's examine these three parties. I'm going to break this down in sort of a case study. We're going to do three quick case studies here. Case study, Number one is the religious leaders accusing Jesus. Much of Pastor David's sermon last week was focused on this group, so I don't want to repeat a whole lot here, but it's important to realize that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, had just sent Jesus through their own trial, and they found him guilty in their own terms, and now they wanted to put him to death. But the problem is they had no real authority to be able to do that. They needed the help of the Roman government in order to put Jesus to death. So if you'll notice in this passage, from last week's passage to this week's passage, they changed their tone. They actually changed their accusation. They changed their charge. It used to be blasphemy, and now they've added on political charges here in our section because they needed the Roman government to also convict him. And so they come to Pilate with these accusations of an insurrection, that Jesus is misleading the nation, which he isn't, forbidding them to pay taxes to Caesar, which he didn't, and now stirring up the people all over the place to overthrow Rome, which is sort of true, but not in the way that they think. So they're trying to find any reason drastic enough to put Jesus to death. Why? Here's why. Because Jesus is a threat to their power. Jesus is a threat to their power. Remember, the Sanhedrin was made up of a certain number of elders. This was a two-party system of Pharisees and Sadducees who hated the attention Jesus was getting. They hated his teachings on grace and hope and forgiveness and reconciliation, and they've been plotting all along, all throughout the gospel, to end him one way or the other. And now these two parties, who are normally divided on so many issues, are unifying for this one common cause, to end this Jesus of Nazareth. 
Surely Pilate won't stand for this rebellion. Surely he'll see a threat to his beloved nation and he'll agree with their charge, which brings us to case study number two, when Jesus is handed over to Pontius Pilate. Now, Pilate was the governor of Judea for like 10 years. Right in the middle of his post, he comes face to face with Jesus Christ. First century historians uh, document that Pilate was overall a pretty terrible governor. He led in a way just to make things easier for himself most of the time. He was prone to people-pleasing or compromising justice, doing just whatever it took to make his life easier, which is exactly what he does with Jesus. He looks around and he thinks, is there anybody who can get me off the hook? Oh, did you say Galilee? I know a guy from Galilee, Herod. Okay, Jesus came up there. Let's, uh, let's hand this over to Herod. Let's let him make the decision. If you want to understand what Pilate's doing here, uh, you can understand it if you think about going to the DMV, just any DMV, anywhere in the country. Um, The first trip never works. You're always going to have to have more paperwork, and you're going to always have to go to this other office and then get back to me. That's what Herod's doing, sending him, I mean, Pilate's sending him over to Herod, to the next office. Or one other way to think about it is imagine a kid going to their dad, hypothetically, before dinner and saying, can I have some ice cream? And the dad hypothetically says, go ask your mom. And then the kid goes to their mom, who's just been doing school from home for the last 272 weeks, and they're exhausted, and they say, hypothetically, I don't know, go ask your dad. And they say, I just did. He said, ask you. That's Pilate handing Jesus over to Herod. He doesn't want to deal with it. Move on. Let somebody else deal with this. So what's really going on here? The point is that Pilate, as governor, is doing the bare minimum. He's doing just enough to get by. He hears the accusations. He asks Jesus to deny. Jesus doesn't deny it. And he says, well, I don't see any guilt in him. And he passes him off to the next person. Pilate is a coward. He's a weak leader. He's just trying to take the easiest route possible. He doesn't want to do what's hard and actually release Jesus because so many people would be upset. Jesus is a threat to Pilate's people-pleasing and having to do the hard thing, even though it's the right thing. So he hands him over to Herod, which brings us to our final case study. Case study number three is Herod. Who is this guy? Herod confuses me. Um, not just because there are like a million Herods in the time of Jesus, that that's part of it, and they're all related. But he confuses me because he goes from wanting to kill Jesus earlier in this gospel to now wanting Jesus to entertain him. It's really interesting. In verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. What is this? Okay, this Herod, Herod Antipas, was a half-Jewish quarter ruler, like a tetrarch, over a couple of territories, Galilee and Perea. That's why Pilate hands Jesus over to him, because Jesus came up in Galilee, and Jesus and Herod had a history. This isn't the Herod from Jesus' birth, that's Herod the Great, this Herod's father, but this is the Herod from earlier in Luke's gospel, when Jesus referred to him as that fox, that fox, when he learned that Herod was trying to have him killed. It's the same Herod that did kill John the Baptist. This guy is terrible. 
But here, he doesn't try to kill Jesus. Rather, he wants him to perform for him. It's strange, and it's really sort of sad. But in the end, when Jesus doesn't do what he wants him to do, he and his soldiers turn on him, and he gets some scribes as well, and and they just end up mocking him. And they put on him these, like, hand-me-down royal robes, and they send him back to Pilate. Why? Because Jesus is a threat to Herod's comfort or entertainment. And when Jesus doesn't do for him what he wants Jesus to do for him, he writes him off. He's done with him. Now, before we move on to Jesus' response, don't miss how the story ends. I don't know if it struck you as odd or interesting at the very end of our passage. One, I think, strange part of how this day unfolded was that from this day forward, Pilate and Herod become friends. It's pretty interesting that Luke would include that little tidbit of information, some little relational knowledge for us to know that Pilate and Herod become buddies. Once again, it's two parties, normally divided over all these different issues, but now united in one common cause, end this Jesus of Nazareth. That's interesting, right? Jesus, even in his suffering, even in his trial, uniting parties otherwise divided. Pharisees, Sadducees, Herod, Pilate. This sounds a lot like the prophecy from Psalm 2. Written of the coming Davidic king of the Jews, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And now these groups three groups, completely missing the Christ, bringing nothing but empty accusations against the Lord's anointed and fulfilling Scripture at every step. So how does Jesus respond to these accusations? There are technically two responses. Uh, One's in verse 3 and the other in verse 9. In verse 3, Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. This is essentially what he said to the council in the passage before this, which is a pseudo-agreement, but without the careful nuance that is really there. And then in verse 9, after Herod had questioned him at some length, it says, but he made no answer. Remember, it's now around 6 a.m. Friday morning just hours before Jesus Christ would be hung on the cross. In the last six hours or so, Jesus has been betrayed, falsely accused, arrested, abandoned by those who loved him most, blindfolded, mocked, and beaten. And now, the Son of Man stands before his next round of accusers, sleep-deprived and weak. The accusations come, and he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't even seem to fight. Why doesn't he fight? Israel was looking for the Messiah, the son of David, the Lion of Judah. Someone who would come and overthrow the evil rulers, who would beat down the bad guys, who would silence Israel's accusers. And now this Jesus comes and he stands silent before his accusers. Israel was looking for a lion. And Jesus comes as a lamb. 
I couldn't help but think of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe this week. I remember watching the movie recently with our girls, the movie from 15 years ago. In the scene where Aslan the Great is on the stone table, and the white witch and her henchmen are being terrible, making these accusations. They beat him and they mocked him. And if you'll remember, the, the sisters are looking on, Susan and Lucy. And in the movie version, I remember the look on little Lucy's face as she sees Aslan on the table and she says, why doesn't he fight back? The truth is Jesus is a powerful lion. And here he suffers as a quiet lamb. Why doesn't he fight back? The prophet Isaiah answers the question for us. In chapter 53, when he writes of the suffering servant, and he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its, its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So why did the Lamb of God open not his mouth? For sheep like us, he was silent in that moment. For sheep like us, wandering, helpless, rebellious, sheep like you and me. The truth is, if we're honest, we are not too different than Jesus' accusers in many ways. In fact, I think if we would have been there, it's possible that we would have been standing with one of these three groups. The rulers who felt threatened by Jesus' power. The governor who was paralyzed by his people-pleasing. Herod, who wanted Jesus to entertain him. Or if nothing else, hiding out with the disciples, thinking it's all over. And yet it's for people like us, sheep like us who doubt him, who want him to make us happy, who want him to make our lives comfortable, who get worried when we think that he's threatening something in our lives or our power. He came not as a lion, but as a lamb. And he stood silent before his accusers because he was going to lay his life down for sheep like us. So now a very important question comes to us, and it's actually not a question in this passage. This comes from earlier in Jesus' ministry, just after he had fed the 5,000, right, with just five loaves of bread and two fish. After the crowds had dispersed, Jesus asked his disciples, who do they say that I am? And so they answered, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah or the prophet. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and he asked them a very important question. He said, who do you say that I am? And the question now comes to us, and it's an important one. Who do you say that Jesus is? Could we be missing him in our lives? 
C.S. Lewis, of course, famously said that there are only three answers to this question, that Jesus is either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is Lord. By the way, apparently Lewis stole those categories from someone else, which gives me a lot of comfort as a preacher, um, because I steal from people all the time, I mean borrow from people all the time, and try to give them credit, and uh, including people like Lewis, who apparently stole from this guy, a guy named Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee was a leader in the church in China in the 1900s, and he wrote a very important book called The Normal Christian Faith. And in this book, it's Nee who makes that argument, where he says, a person who claims to be God must belong to one of three categories. If he claims to be God and he is not, then he has to be a madman or a lunatic. If he is neither God nor a lunatic, he must be a liar, deceiving others by his lie. But if he is neither of those, he must be God. Nee writes, There is no need for us to prove if Jesus of Nazareth is God or not. All we have to do is find out, is he a lunatic or is he a liar? And if he is neither of those, then he must be the very Son of God. So the question comes to us, who do you say that Jesus is? Perhaps you think that he is a liar. I hope that you'll begin to take him at his word. This is an invitation, really, to take him at his word, as so many have, to see how he can actually make sense of our life and our world better than anyone else. Or maybe you feel that he's a lunatic, he's a madman, and all of his followers are just crazy too. Um, His followers may be crazy, but he isn't. I hope you'll have a relationship with believers who can tell you why we really do believe that Jesus is trustworthy and true. But for those of the rest of us, and I think the majority here perhaps would say Jesus is Lord, I want to just begin to close with some practical applications from this reality. What might it look like for us to walk out of here today trusting and worshiping Jesus as Lord in our daily life? And so I have three things for us. The first is this. If Jesus is Lord, you can face your fears. You can face your fears. Whether you struggle with fear of man or fear of people-pleasing like Pilate or like me, fear of losing your comforts like Herod, fear of losing your power like the religious crowd, or you struggle with any other list of fears, you can face your fears because Jesus has already faced them for you on the cross. You can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. Why? Because he is with you. He is with you in your fears. Jesus didn't come to threaten our power or our comfort or any other idol. He came to set us free from them. He laid down his life so that our chains could be laid down. He frees us from our people-pleasing nature because he reminds us that God is pleased with us, not because of us, but because of Jesus for us. He frees us from our idols of comfort or power because He is the one who comforts us. He is the one who is powerful. We're not in control. He is in control. He frees us from our fears. Especially if you feel that in this season where, you know, comfort or power or something like that is being threatened, 
or you feel that it might be, it's because it is. Like it is being threatened right now in our life. And Jesus wants to set us free from thinking that we have any control whatsoever. To know that God really is at work in those very places and our fear can lead us to Jesus, not away from him. So that's number one. Number two, if Jesus is Lord, you can face your failures. The truth is that Christ died for failures. Christ died for sinners. People who do not have their lives together. People who yell at their kids. People who cheat because it was the easiest way in that moment. People who hide sin. People who get angry and not in a righteous way. People who know that they are sinners and they need a savior. He took on our failures when he took on the cross. He himself was a failure in the world's eyes to forgive failures like us. He was innocent and treated as guilty so that those of us who are truly guilty can be counted as innocent in the court of God. This means you really can come to Jesus with your sin, whether it's for the first time or the 1,000th time today. We can be honest. This means it actually frees us to be honest with other people too, to confess our sins, to share our struggles, to admit our failures. We can do that. He was mocked with hand-me-down royal robes, and he suffered on the cross so that you might be covered with hand-me-down robes of righteousness forever, covered by his record. He stood silent before his accusers so that he might silence your accusers forever. And I don't know what your accusers are or where they're coming from. It may be an inward voice. It may be people in your life. It no doubt is the evil one who wants us to doubt and fear and run and hide. Know that Jesus silences our accusers. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. And the final one is this. If Jesus is Lord, not only can you face your fears and face your failures, but you can also face your future. I don't know if you've noticed recently, but things in our world are not going great. Um, and, I, and I don't mean that, you know, sarcastically or, or to be silly. Like, this is a hard, hard, hard time. And if we're not willing to admit that, something's sort of wrong with us. Things are difficult. And it's stuff out there and it's stuff in here. It's disease and it's death. And it's so much turmoil even in our own country, broken systems and injustices and fights and riots of all sorts. Like there's so much going on. Also, we're in an election year. That's not going great. Things are difficult out there, but things are difficult in here, in our own homes, in our own hearts, in our own congregation. And so you may be really struggling to think about the future. Will it ever get better? By the way, this is true no matter what age group is sitting out here on the lawn today, isn't it? 
for our kids, uh, for our senior citizens, and everywhere in between. If you're like me, sometimes you're looking around at the difficult things in life, and I promise you, I struggled with this this week. And you ask, can Jesus do something about this? Can't Jesus do something about this? So let me ask you a question. Where in your life are you looking for Jesus to show up as a lion and to make it all right? I want to encourage you with a picture we're given in Scripture in the book of Revelation where the Apostle John is called up in this vision hoping that God would deliver his people, his church, ultimately from every suffering in this world, from death and disease and persecution and injustices of every kind. And in chapter 5, in chapter 5, John had just witnessed the throne for the first time. And now on the throne, he sees a scroll. And in this scroll contains essentially all of God's plans. And the idea here is that if someone were able to open the scroll, then God would begin to set everything right. His plan would unfold. But John looks around and he sees no one to open the scroll. And you know what he does? He begins to weep. He loses it. Weeping loudly because he feels so hopeless about the future. And how we long for God's plans to unfold, right? We, we long for that in individual situations. And that's John in this moment. And then an elder speaks up and he says, Weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll. And you get a sense in chapter 5, John's heart is lifted. Here comes the great lion. He is worthy to open the scroll. And then something totally unexpected happens. John looks, hoping to see a lion who will now come and conquer all of the church's enemies. And out walks a lamb. A lamb. A lamb which John says looked as if it had been slain. But the people in the scene knew exactly who this lion was, who this lamb was. They weren't missing Jesus in this moment, and so they break out in the song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Where are you? Where are you hoping for Jesus to show up right now as a lion? Can I encourage you? Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, Jesus is for us both lion and lamb. He is the powerful king who can and will right all of the wrongs in this world in his own timing. And he is near and present as a lamb lays down his life for his people, reconciling us to himself. And I don't know if you heard it in Revelation, also reconciling us to one another. Jesus bringing together otherwise divided parties as one people, 
from every tribe and language and people and nation for one purpose, to worship and serve the true king. You can face your fears with Jesus as your lion. You can face your failures with Jesus as your lamb. And you can face your future knowing that he is firmly seated on his throne, the risen king, the true king, both now and forevermore. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord God, would you help us to behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin? Would you help us to know that you are ruling and reigning? That you are the true King. In a day where we don't know what the future holds, in a day where we are uh, maybe confused, perplexed as to what you are up to, even in a political environment where we can be so divided over who we think is best to lead, may we know that you are best to lead at all times for your people. Will we be united in one purpose as Christians in this world to serve you, to point others to you, to be able to confess our sins, confess our fears, and to lean fully onto our Lamb who loves us. God, would you do that for our good and for your glory? We ask humbly in the name of Jesus. Amen.